and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went far away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, all this time, Yeshua has been talking about a cup he must drink and a baptism he must endure. The cup in this case referring back to so many references in the prophets about judgment coming by way of cups. You know, even in the Sota examination of a woman suspected of adultery, she is compelled to drink a cup of judgment and, based on the outcome, her guilt or innocence was determined. You know, unlike the water ordeal of the ancient Near Eastern world where they would throw a person in deep water and if they drowned they were guilty, there was nothing harmful about what the woman would drink if the Sota, in the Sota, if she was innocent and thus the verdict was seen as divine. More and more, we'll be getting closer to the cup that Yeshua must drink, uh, the crucifixion. And it won't be obvious right away what possible vindication there will be, because as the author tells us repeatedly, they're still without understanding. But, you know, to give them some credit, Yeshua has been making some claims that must sound insane. The baptism, of course, is always symbolic of a status or state change, changing, you know, from one thing to another, one kind of person to another, one um, loyalty to another. You know, for us, of course, you know, transferring allegiance from one kingdom to another. And I struggled, and perhaps you struggled, too, in making that commitment. I, I actually struggled really hard. Um, it, it, it was almost comical, but a baptism nowadays in the West isn't much of anything dangerous. In other parts of the world, it's, you know, it's a death sentence. And so I, I imagine that there are many of our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa who go through their own version of Gethsemane before being baptized. For them to turn away from Allah or the gods of their ancestors or away from the dictatorships that rule over their lives is, you know, very dangerous business that we in the West just, we can't relate to, we can't appreciate, 
you know, when we're talking about being um, persecuted, it's over stuff that they would, you know, they'd trade in a heartbeat. Um, sometimes we just have to make it up, too. <laughs> it's, yeah. I imagine that people in countries whose governments are outright enemies of the gospel have a lot of examples to think of, of what might await them after baptism. Imprisonment, torture, rape, being bludgeoned or maimed by machetes, being burned to death, losing their children. Um, just like Yeshua had seen crucifixions all of his life under, you know, the brutal tyranny of, of, of uh, the Augustan, Tiberian, you know, Roman Empire. Doing God's will in places like those aren't anything that most of us can identify with. People in the West, you know, we make mountains out of molehills because in truth we have it so easy, but like to imagine ourselves as courageous martyrs just for, you know, posting something unpopular on Facebook. But Yeshua knew that he was about to face, you know, under an anonymous name even, but Yeshua knew that he was about to face every ounce of hatred that the kingdoms of the world and the spirits directing those powers had to dish out. Evil was about to empty itself out on Yeshua in a mercilessly horrifying way. Yeshua was either going to stand firm or buckle. He knew it. And we're going to see him praying about it in this third and final prayer narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach kids Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, uh, the ESV, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. This week we will be mostly in Mark 14. Um, you know, this is hard to read, all right? And it's going to get harder as the weeks go by. I'm going to point something out. Mark's entire audience, which we know was centered either in or nearer to Rome because of all the Latin loan words and, you know, Roman concepts in this gospel. You know, his audience, they knew about crucifixions. They didn't need one to be described to them. They knew what happened before, during, and after. They had seen crucifixions of slaves and rebels all of their lives. And so it's interesting that Mark actually is going to go into such detail about the prayers, the arrest, the trials, the torture, and the crucifixion itself. It's 
Not unlikely that Mark reported about it at length because it was worse than normal. A lot worse. There is shock value here. Um, from Yeshua, you know, not going boldly and without a second thought toward death as we would expect. You know, from the heroes of old. And remember that Yeshua has been portrayed this entire time as a warrior destroying the kingdom of Satan. Um, so he goes from, from, from not, you know, wanting this, okay? Um, to being shamed and wronged by numerous groups. Uh, the, the key here is to focus on a few things, okay? So one, a lot of the, Detail highlights that Yeshua is living and acted out parable here of, among other scriptures, Isaiah 53. Two, we're going to see echoes of other lesser messianic figures such as Joseph, Samson, and David in their trials. Three, the author wants us to understand the utter and complete shaming and degradation of the new Passover lamb so that we can better appreciate and celebrate his later vindication and exaltation. But right now, that seems like a million years away. Um, right now, we have to deal with the dread before the storm, and we can take comfort in the fact that Yeshua doesn't bypass this aspect of the trials that are common to all of us. His trust in God didn't just override and overwhelm the dread and anguish he experienced in contemplating his immediate fate. Now, before we start, I want to let you know that I see this passage very differently now than I did a year ago. Over the course of the last year, I have been heavily focused on um, the lamentations in Scripture, and they make up a lot of the Bible. A lot more than triumphalistic Western Christianity would have us believe. 40% of the Psalms are laments, crying out and complaining to God. And a sizable chunk of the prophets and an entire book of the Bible, you know, are lamentations. So I strongly encourage you to spend some time studying the lamentation theologians from the African-American community, the African community, and the Asian community. Because um, they have known, okay, and, and do know, you know, harsh tribulation. They have incredible you know, insight into a reality of scripture that most Westerners just don't understand beyond the shallowest possible level. You know, speaking from personal experience here, and um, and I will link some great books in the transcript. The way I read this now, um, better able to empathize with this rejected Jewish rabbi living under an oppressive regime that was not very respectful of non-citizens or basic human rights in general, and that was actually overstating their respect. It's entirely different than how I skimmed over it in the past. You know, only thinking about the physical pain. Um, Anyway, let's get started here, and you will come to see why lament is something to be embraced by the faithful and not shunned. Verse 32, and of course, as I said before, this is uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, based on what time of year it was and how early it became dark, Yeshua and his disciples, and we don't know how many went because back in verse 26, it gives a generic they for those who left the dinner and went to the Mount of Olives, which was at least 15 minutes away. And so they probably arrived at Gethsemane somewhere between 10 and 11 at night. And we are on the 15th of Nisan or Aviv now. And, you know, as an aside, there are people who shun the month named Nisan because it is of Babylonian origin. But there is ample evidence to suggest that Aviv is a word that actually came from the Canaanites because it shows up in Ugaritic documents. Nisan comes from the Babylonian verb Nisanu, which means to move out, and Aviv was the Canaanite word for barley. Neither word's pagan, they are simply descriptive, and, you know, both are fine. As in many things, in, you know, much ado about nothing. Now, Gethsemane comes from Gat Shemanim in Aramaic, where the noun Gat means wine press, and Shemanim has various meanings related to oils. In later rabbinic use, gat came to specifically mean an oil press, and so it's likely that it already had that meaning in the first century when used by the gospel authors. Given the orchard setting, an oil press is a suitable, you know, thing to find on the Mount of Olives. Although the current olive trees on the Mount appear to be ancient, the truth is that when the Romans camped on Mount the Mount of Olives, uh, during the Siege of Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era, you know, they destroyed the uh, trees for siege works um, and for kindling and whatever else they needed. In fact, if I remember correctly, there were no trees standing for like a mile. That's probably wrong, but let's just say that you had to walk a long time before you could find a tree. Um, I gave an exact distance back when I was teaching chapter 13, but I'm way too lazy to look it up today. Now, John says that they met in a garden here, but the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention it. Now, there is a scholar named Joan Taylor who wrote a really great article for Biblical Archaeology Review, B-A-R for short, called The Garden of Gethsemane, Not the Place of Jesus's Arrest. And in it, she talks at length about the presence of a very large cave that was used during the time period as an oil press for olives. Now, why her objection to the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, this is one of those paradigms that we were all raised with, even people who weren't Christian. Um, none of the Gospels specifically mention such a place, and the closest is John who in chapter 18 says that Yeshua and the disciples went across the Kidron Wadi to Akepos. Now, a wadi is a riverbed that is dry during the summer, but can become a raging river within a short time in the winter once the early rains come. So Yeshua and the disciples cross this dry riverbed on the east side of Jerusalem, separating, you know, the temple from the Mount of Olives. But Akepos is likely not a garden as we would know it, and in fact, it just means a cultivated area, which can mean a lot of things. Um, likely, in this case, it referred to the large orchard of olive trees. 
backing that up here in Mark, where he says that they went to a place, Corion, uh, called Gethsemane. Now, a Corion is simply a cultivated place, not specifically a garden, and again, more likely an orchard. But more than that, yeah, she does a, an amazing job of really supporting the idea that the disciples would have taken refuge from the cold night in the large oil press cave that still exists on the mount. It's like, not like caves go anywhere unless they cave in. Um, but during the spring, it would not be in use. Obviously, it would uh, also be very dry and warm, and it certainly wasn't either outside, you know, um, because we'll see, you know, Peter warming himself by the fire in the courtyard of the high priest, something he would be unlikely to do if it were not quite chilly. Um, so plus we see one of Yeshua's disciples running from the scene, um, stripped of the only clothing he had, a linen undergarment. Now, hardly the sort of outfit uh, one would be wearing on a chilly hillside in March or April. Not only can it be very rainy this time of year, uh, but high temperatures are only in the 40s and 50s, so you can imagine the nights are much colder. Now, she makes a very convincing case for them spending the night in the oil press cave. I'm going to link the article in the transcript, which will be available on my blog on Friday. If you don't know anything about oil presses and caves, you will want to look at that article. It's incredibly informative. Now, Yeshua says to his disciples, who have likely entered into the cave, sit here while I pray. And remember I told you last week that they were full of protein, carbs, and wine. It was late. Beside the full moon, it was pretty dang dark, and they'd been out in the cold, and now they were inside and warmer, and they were likely exhausted. Now, this is the recipe for the perfect nap, which at this time of night would last me about 12 hours. So it's not out of the question that they assumed they were spending the night, at which point they would have removed their cloaks in order to sleep on them. Full belly, full moon, lots of alcohol. Only a werewolf could stay, you know, awake under these kinds of conditions. And I mean, I certainly couldn't. Okay, uh, verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So he leaves behind the disciples and goes elsewhere with the big three. Okay, Peter, James, and John, who are the only ones up to this point that he has been anything nearing transparent about what is about to happen. All right. They are the only three who were in on all three of the passion predictions and who had been told that Yeshua would be rejected, who would reject him, that they would hand him over to the Gentiles and that he would be killed and he would rise on the third day. The others were largely kept in the dark, and it was only during the Passover Seder that they were informed that one of the twelve would actually betray him, and that they would all abandon him, and that Peter would personally deny him three times before the end of the night. Now remember from um, Mark chapter 3 verse 14 that the reason Yeshua chose the twelve, the primary reason was that they would be with him. Yeshua wasn't a loner, and these weren't just seminary candidates he was mentoring from a distance. These were his beloved companions in addition to simply being students. Yeah, he loved them. 
and we rarely see him alo alone except um, when he would go aside to pray. But this time he takes them along with him, likely for two reasons, which we will get to in a bit. So verse 33 um, says that Yeshua began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In the Greek, these words are ekthembao ed, and uh, edemonao. Ekthembao is um, used four times in scripture, but it is a very intense word. It's the word used for when the women saw the angel at the tomb. And I have to tell you that I, believe me or not, I saw the face of an angel once and I was scared. Oh, I didn't see just the face. I saw the whole angel and I was scared out of my mind and I started shrieking. So, and no, he didn't talk to me anything. I, I might have scared him away. I Seriously, I, I was terrified. So this is no casual word here. Now in Sirach, uh, also known as Ecclesiasticus, the word is actually translated as terrorized. And I can, yeah, I know what that word feels like. Adam Monell, um, comes up only three times in scripture and is synonymous with deep anxiety, not just casual worry. Together, you know, they give this sense that Yeshua was shaking with anxiety and barely holding it together. So he needs to pray and he needs his companions. And sometimes we like to forget how human Yeshua was because we prefer to think of his passion as less horrible. His humanity made it all the more horrible and all the more a picture of ultimate love. And I want to point out something else, though. Yeshua is not showing the arrogant confidence of Peter and the others. Yeshua knows that he needs that communion of prayer with the Father. This is something that ought to knock all of us off of our high horses. If Yeshua needs prayer, we need a whole lot more than we can even begin to imagine. Verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Uh, before he leaves them to go a bit further on, he tells them that his soul is sorrowful. In Greek, the word is perilupos. And this is another rare, rare word, only popping up four times in the New Testament and five times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a word used for a severe emotional state either extraordinarily sad or heartbroken or enraged. And Yeshua says that the emotional, emotional burden is so bad that it's bad enough to result in his death. This is a horrible picture, all right, of a man so brokenhearted, so terrified, so filled with abject dread and bereft of hope that it, he feels like he's going to die from it. We don't like our Messiah to be this human. It's very threatening. And if he is this human, um, then it requires a response from us that goes beyond casual loyalty in the extreme. And I will tell you that um, a lot of the heresies that popped up like in the second and third and fourth centuries they, a lot of them were backlash against Yeshua being 
this human. Uh, there were, there were, um, people who said, well, he just didn't even have a physical body at all. You know, he feigned death. Uh, you know, just anything to get away from this idea that the divine could take on such weakness and, and suffer the way we suffer every bit as much and be filled with things like dread and, and, all. but isn't it wonderful that we really do have a high priest who actually does understand everything we're going through and the author of Hebrews wasn't just saying it to make us feel better. Wow. Anyway, um, I will be back in a few minutes. Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context. And we're talking, uh, we're in Mark 14, talking about um, Gethsemane and the prayers in Gethsemane. And um, we had just covered uh, verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And we had just covered the the depth of emotion and sorrow that that word uh Peripulos, perilopos, excuse me, uh, means it's a rare word and it's, uh, it's an excruciating word as far as emotion goes. Um, it's extreme emotion. Um, but, uh, Yeshua gives his disciples the instruction to remain here and watch. Now in Greek, it has, um, the sense of waiting and staying awake. As a doorkeeper would, all right? And I've talked before about why the doorkeeper was such an important job. And it's really the only reason that I don't hate my first name, Tyler, which means doorkeeper in Old English. It, this isn't just a directive to stay awake, but to be alert as well. The command to it um, actually directly relates to the original Passover night, as we see in Exodus 12.42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout the generations. So now we're seeing um, the greater fulfillment of this. Yeshua here is giving them a Passover-based commandment to fill. He's really telling them to participate in an acted-out parable and not for the first time. He's showing them that this is the ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus vigil. And he's going to have to tell them to keep vigil three times. Now, remember that Yeshua is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. And during the Seder, he made it clear that the Passover itself was being redefined in his ministry, death and resurrection. That they will all fail to follow through makes them no different from their ancestors who were forever rebellious, you know, just like us. Anyway, verse 35. And uh, going on a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
Let's go back to Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon, right before the Transfiguration, toward the end of chapter 8. And, you know, we have the first of the three passion predictions. Now, right before that, Peter has identified Yeshua as the Messiah, followed by the shocking prediction of his rejection uh, by the powers that be among the Jewish elites, possibly talking about the Sanhedrin. We will talk about that later. And Peter rebukes Yeshua and says that this just can't happen. Yeshua called Peter Satan, meaning adversary. And we get this sense that Yeshua is being tempted once more, you know, first in the wilderness and then here. And it's happening again at Gethsemane. And Yeshua falls to the ground. He doesn't gingerly get down on his knees, all dignified and solemn and super spiritual, okay? This is just absolute submission and supplication, placing himself at the mercy of the Father. As I mentioned before, this is the third time in this gospel that Yeshua is portrayed as getting away by himself to pray. This time, unlike the others, we know the content of those prayers. And we can assume, you know, what can we assume about these prayers from the rest of scripture, um, you know, being that this is a lamentation. How are lamentations carried out elsewhere in the Bible? How would a Jewish rabbi slash sage slash teacher cry out to God? He would lift his hands. He would cry out loudly. He would lay prostrate in his anguish and distress. There was nothing dignified about this sort of thing. It is raw and honest and real. And I, please forgive me for all the pauses. I'm congested again. And what is, um, this hour that he's talking about? Yeshua is not only going to become the Passover to, um, to ransom Israel, you know, as well as the world. Okay. But he's also going to fulfill the Akedah. The binding of Isaac by Abraham, you know, when a ram caught in the thicket by its horns took the place of the son of Abraham as an ascending offering in Genesis. Now, I think I talked last week about how art depicts the ram standing on its back legs with its horns caught in the thicket, much like a crown of thorns. As a ram in that situation would be greatly in distress and absolutely at the mercy of predators, so too is the Son of Man who will die as the perfect representative of Israel, fulfilling the function of Israel in the world where Israel has failed. Verse 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All right, now it may make you angry here. Abba doesn't mean daddy. Although, I know that's popular and comforting after being pushed so hard by Joachim Jeremias back in 1971 in his New Testament theology. And this, by the way, is the first time that Abba shows up in Jewish literature at all. It actually pops up as the more formal father uh, or esteemed teacher in the Targums and in Mishnaic times, which is later. Uh, it, it shows up only here and twice in Paul's epistles. James Barr wrote a great article called Abba Isn't Daddy, where he talks about the ancient usage of the word and how it would more reflect the respectful, respectful 
patriarchal norms of that time instead of modern ideas about the word daddy and the casual overfamiliarity that comes with that. Uh, Geza Vermes uh, also debunked this idea back in 1983 in his own book, Jesus in the World of Judaism. Uh, the theory had problems both linguistically and contextually and completely falls apart when we look at how the word Abba is used throughout the Targums in ways that would be utterly ridiculous and inappropriate if the term was babyish or childish. But the level of knowledge of ancient languages to understand why it's wrong prevented all but a few to even challenge it for a very long time. And no one uh, could reach a popular lay audience with the correction. And so it's remained popular. Um, in the end, our father is still God and not a human. It's just another example of how anachronisms can enter into the way that we view the Bible. But why Abba? There's a good reason for it. Although it's wrong to make the term into a childish designation like Dada or Daddy, it is still a term of intimate respect. We cannot forget the patriarchal reality of the ancient world when we think of parent-child relationships. It's not comparable to what we think of today as the ideal. Throughout the scripture, when people are in crisis and lamenting, there is a very real reaching out to God as a personal father. This is entirely a Hebraic way of looking at God, very unlike other nations who had no reason to trust in their gods or to expect preferential treatment as sons and daughters. And so laments in the Bible aren't just crying out in sorrow, they're leveled as complaints to the patriarchal authority who can do something to change circumstances, you know, uh, as well as to a maternal figure who listens to complaints with compassion. When we look at the traditional Jewish prayers in a daily siddur, it's filled with petitions to Avinu, our father, or Malkenu, our king. Yeshua's cry is heart-wrenching, and it is also a complaint. He wants the hour to pass from him. He reminds Yahweh that anything is possible for him. He requests that Yahweh do what he is absolutely able to do. He wants the cup of wrath, you know, spoken of repeatedly by the prophets against Israel's rebellion, removed. This is a complaint. Yahweh can do something and Yeshua doesn't want to go through it. And yet, as in other laments of the Bible, there is a resignation and submission. If this is Yahweh's choice for Yeshua, it is the best way and or the only way. Yeshua is resigned to obey and endure it, okay? But this is not a case of going quietly into that good night. Yeshua is fighting against this as much as he can before simply giving in. He has faith. He loves his father, but he doesn't want to go through this. Yeshua is incredibly human in addition to being incredibly divine. And if he can approach God with this sort of wrestling, then so can we. That is what the family relationship gains us. This is entirely a biblical approach and um, biblical in scope as well. All right. Now, one more thing. We have an echo of the Avinu here, the Lord's Prayer. It begins with Abba Father and ends with not what I will, but you, what you will. Very similar to the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer, which begins with our Father and ends with your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, uh, verse 37. 
And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Three things I want you to notice here. One, they're sleeping when it is traditional to stay up late on Passover night. Now remember, we just talked about it being a vigil feast. Harkening back to Exodus 12, 42, a night of watching. And this is our second reference to watching in, in this section of scripture. Uh, two, he addresses Peter as Simon again. Peter hasn't been referred to as Simon since chapter 3, when he was called to be a member of the Twelve. You know, really, you have to go back to chapter 1 to see him actually being called by that name. Why is Yeshua regressing away from the name he gave to Simon? Well, let's go back to Leah in Genesis. She named her second son Simeon because Yahweh heard that she was unloved. Simeon is, you know, related to being heard, which also plays into the Shema, which means to hear and obey. <clears throat> Peter isn't hearing Yeshua again. None of them are, but Peter is likely the oldest and clearly the leader, even among the three. Peter's not behaving like a rock, which is the meaning of Petros, but instead like Israel in being deaf, as they are described repeatedly in Isaiah. Not like us, right? <clears throat> yeah, we're always listening. Yeah, right. Okay, so three, Yeshua rebukes Peter for not watching one hour. Yeshua is wanting this hour to pass from him, this horrific hour of crucifixion. And Peter and the others can't even keep vigil for one literal hour. It's heartbreaking. Uh, verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here we have our third mention of the need to keep vigil, to watch. And now we have the reason for their need to pray. Not for Yeshua, but for their own sakes. Yeshua's told them that they will all abandon him and that Peter will deny him three times before the night is over. But, you know, the amazing thing is that even with that prediction, delivered in oath formula, truly I say to you. He's still telling them that they can petition God so that they will stand strong, that they won't cut and run and crumble. You know, that's trust in God. That's hope in us despite our failures. And I find it so incredible that he can predict our failings while still having this amazing faith and hope. You know, what can we learn from this sort of hope that can actually coexist with us being utterly weak and ridiculous? For one thing, you know, maybe we can give ourselves a bit more credit and give Yahweh more credit because, you know, maybe our sin natures really aren't as strong as we like to imagine when we're giving into it. Okay. God's mercy is always stronger. And this isn't about being hard on ourselves, but about trusting him and knowing ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Yeshua tells him that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we tend to equate that with the Holy Spirit. Okay. But this usage of Numa is talking about their intentions. You know, all those things they promised and assured him they would never fall away. And especially Peter, um, when they were saying it, they weren't lying. 
They were absolutely willing to die and not run away when they said that. And totally confident. But you know, flesh rules over the moment. It does. That's why they needed to keep vigil and pray for the strength not to succumb, you know, not to succumb to their flesh. Instead of just assuming that they were all that in a bag of chips, all right? Oh, verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So, again, Yeshua leaves them and cycles through his lamentation process again. And it is important that he said the exact same thing because when we determine to do God's will and to submit to his plans, you know, we still succumb to our grief and anxiety and complaints again before we steal ourselves to God's will or before, you know, events are so firmly underway that we are just living in the moment. But hopefully, you know, this time really guided by, um, by God more than, um, our whims because we didn't prepare in prayer. Uh, verse 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Ah, uh, their eyes were heavy. You know, remember the reference to Peter being referred to as Simon again, the one who needs to hear. And that being a reference back to deaf Israel in Isaiah. Okay. Well, here we have them unable to even keep their eyes open, making them blind as well. And we can all stand amazed that the three are speechless for the first time ever. All right. Well, maybe not the first time, but you know, are they beginning to doubt themselves and their claims to stand courageously by their teacher's side? Or are they just embarrassed and still not understanding, you know, the beginnings of their complete and utter failure? These are the three who are always saying something ridiculous whenever Yeshua has something important to reveal to them, either in the form of protests or, or delusions of grandeur and power seeking or wanting to commit genocide. Um, you know, there's that gem as well in Luke 9, all right? Um, but now they have nothing to say, probably just as well. Listening to the three of them has been excruciating up to this point. <clears throat> and it's about to get a lot worse in the case of Peter. But deaf, blind, and speechless, not only does that hearken back to the prophetic description of Israel um, in the prophets, and especially in Isaiah, was it Isaiah 6 or 9? I think it's Isaiah 9, 6 or 6, 9. <laughs> this morning, I'm just not remembering it. Uh, it's terrible. When you've got a cold and it's like your brain goes with you. Um, so, but this is also what we find in my favorite teaching psalm. Psalm 115. Speaking of all who put their trust in idols. And by the way, this was part of the Hillel that night too. Um, it reads, They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. 
They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, right? Isaiah uses that same language to describe apostate Israel pre-exile and even during the exile. This is important because it's contrasting the disciples who are representatives of Israel as it is and the perfect Israel represented by Yeshua. And of course, Yeshua was the only one who could ever be a perfect Israel because we're all, you know, we're all weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak with us too. Um, yes, they've heard him teach and watched his life and have even worked miracles, but they are not in, they're still not inheritors of the new creation life that will be inaugurated at the cross and witnessed at the empty tomb, even though they've, you know, already received portion of the Holy Spirit so they can do these things. You know, this is why John the Baptist was less than those who belong to the kingdom of heaven as anointed and spirit-filled as he was, he was still living as part of the old creation reality. And so that is why he behaved differently. He had a different outlook. Um, you know, sometimes we, we underestimate how the new creation existence changes us beyond, you know, where... John the Baptist could go, even though you have to, you have to admire his faithfulness and his, um, his boldness, right? Now, I'm not talking about favor or salvation or obedience here. Okay. I'm, I'm as, as far as, you know, John the Baptist goes, I'm just saying that things changed radically. And so people were able to change radically after the cross. Verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Yeshua goes off and laments, complains, and submits a third time, and again finds them incapacitated by the flesh. And I'm not disrespecting them, okay? I probably wouldn't have made it through the Seder itself, you know. The reason I decided not to go to med school is because I knew I couldn't survive residency. I need sleep. I'm just a wimp, all right? But they've failed to pray, to see, to understand, and even to speak. And I believe it's because they have been very much enslaved to their fleshly desires all this time. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted wealth. Let's just be plain with it. They were acting the part of mammon worshipers. They were behaving like idolaters, biding their time until Messiah finally got his act together and started kicking butt and taking names. They still have their eyes on worldly ambitions and it has rendered them all but senseless. It's going to take a miracle, literally, to shake them out of it just as it takes with us. You're no different. So he's saying, you're sleeping, okay. <laughs> or you're sleeping, you know. Okay, that's it. No more time. You couldn't keep vigil an hour. And now my hour of suffering is here. The son of man, which is, you know, Yeshua's preferred self-designation, is betrayed. Paradidomi, which, you know, you remember, means to be handed over for judgment throughout the Septuagint into the hands of sinners. In this world, word sinners, um, 
It's, um, hamartalos. It's a very harsh word. It shows up in the Septuagint to describe the truly wicked. This isn't chatat or asham kinds of sinning where there's a mistake or at least regret afterward. This is the word used to translate the Hebrew rasha, the word describing the ones who are so reprobate that God will not pardon them. Verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word for rise here is agero, our resurrection word. And it is absolutely what they need to do in order to recover from this failure. They will need to be reborn. And they're directed to notice that the betrayer, again, paradidomi, is approaching. Um, in this gospel, these are the last recorded words of Yeshua to his disciples. And so we leave with a cliffhanger for the disciples. And next week we will talk about who the sinners are and um, about the arrest. And um, we do have some a little bit of time here. I'm running a little short. Uh, but um, so I am um, in the uh, in the transcript. I have. um a link to a great article, The Garden of Gethsemane, Not the Place of Jesus' Arrest by Joan F. Taylor. And it talks about, and you learn all sorts of amazing things about oil presses in that era and having them in a cave and the indentation. You can find evidence for it in the cave, and it's really fascinating. Um, anyway, so next week we're going to get to Jesus' arrest, Yeshua's arrest. And um, oh, it's so, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. And... Um, it's hard to watch. It, it's hard to see it. Anyway, uh, see you next week.